You're listening to The Raw Podcast, where we make sense of the madness and mayhem that is the world of sports. I'm Reardon Lee. I'm Ben Conkey. And I'm Ryman White. And today we're going to be talking about what makes a sport successful. Yes, we've set ourselves a task of determining what is Australia's most successful sport. As always, we'll be doing this in three sections. Um, Firstly, we're going to look at what markers we use to measure a sport's success and how things like ratings and, and crowd attendance figures work. Secondly, we'll ask which of these markers are the most important. To do this, we're enlisting the help of Sam Al-Maliki, a former head of community engagement at Cricket Australia. And third and finally, perhaps most controversially, what Australia's most successful sport is. Alrighty guys, before we get into the numbers and the arguments, I want to just have a little quick little deep dive into what metrics we actually use to measure a sport success and how these all work. So I guess the first one, the most obvious one is crowd attendance, probably because it's the most mm. visible one on TVs. You can point and see, oh, there's nobody <laughs> at that NRL game. Um, and it's obviously been a big talking point throughout the 2017 final series comparing comparing sorry, the AFL and the NRL crowds. It's a bit of a dark art. Um, measuring crowd attendance the for big stadiums like ANZ and Allianz they just use a method that you could probably guess they just use the electronic ticket data that comes with the turnstiles and then they pass that on to the clubs and the clubs can do whatever they want with that but of course not all the big stadiums have these electronic gizmos that can measure every single ticket that comes in a lot of the suburban stadiums especially in the NRL until about 2013 didn't have any of these um, didn't have any of this technology right very old school. Yeah, it was very old school. They used to just sort of have an educated guess. Um, but then in 2013, the NRL was like, all right, we've got to standardize this. So they upgraded all the sort of suburban stadiums with barcodes. And that's sort of how the NRL does it now. They just have however many tickets go through the barcode, go through the turnstiles. That's the number, theoretically, um, how they measure it and what they report on. The AFL, though, is slightly different. Conks, you actually tipped me off as to how they do it. And it's Utterly bizarre. Ryman, do you have yeah. any idea how the AFL do it? No, no, I don't. Just one lady just looking at the crowd and just doing it by by looking, basically. <laughs> she just counts it somehow Your... in her head. Um, just looking at the crowd either at the game or on TV. Now, I think you've got the name of this woman. Yeah, her name's Marnie Nash, and she's uh, has a background in mathematics, as you might have imagined, and she's developed a system... I don't know, using maths and observation where she literally counts by hand how many people are in the stadium. So I've got the quote here. Uh, The AFL said, there are just too many variables, things like uh, members entry, media passes, turnstile jumpers, who've, you know, important variable to take into account, helicopter drops. You just can't uh, get a machine to count crowd numbers. And the AFL reckons she does this almost perfectly. And I don't know what they're comparing her numbers to to get that metric but they they seem really confident in it i assume with like gws games she just uses both hands and she can pretty much do it with oh, a hundred percent accuracy. that's amazing it's um that's fantastic that they have this lady i just have this image coming into my mind of the of a crazy old lady <laughs> um just sitting at a game sort of pointing her finger around a stadium, um, making sure that they don't miss the the crowd attendance figures of people who've jumped the turnstiles is really fantastic. <laughs> yeah. They want to they haven't paid for their ticket to get in, but they're going to add to the stats for the <laughs> game. That's um, still contributing in some way. And that's why AFL only announced the crowd number in the fourth quarter. 
why it's so late right. compared to um, other sports where it's usually around half time or about three quarters of the way through the game because it takes for a bit longer. Um, and But a lot of the time there are no electric counters. There are no crowd counting savant ladies that are there <laughs> at your disposal to count. So a lot of the time they just take an educated guess like the, the Grand Prix at Albert Park. They're just like, oh, yeah, we think about 300,000, <laughs> but... Who knows? Like, yeah. <laughs> they can just pretty much do it however they want. And that tends to be the rule across all the leagues because there's no one really regulating. There's no sort of um, framework in place to make sure that they're reporting accurate numbers. And so the leagues can get their numbers from the stadiums, from the crowd lady, but they can report them however they want. And we've actually found that um, maybe unsurprisingly that competitions just tend to inflate the numbers fairly significantly uh the melbourne storm chief executive ron gauchy i think it was back in about 2011 uh said that clubs frequently add a bit of mustard to the numbers and they just sort of bump them up because who's going to call them out on it the courier mail this year reported that the nrl's numbers for the 2017 final series didn't match anz and Allianz's numbers by a discrepancy of about 15 percent and the gold coast titans were famously pinged a few years ago uh, for their their home crowd the numbers announced that their home crowds for 14 of their 15 matches um, did not match the numbers in the annual report. So they yeah. just fluff them and no one really calls them out on it. So you've got to take it all with a grain of salt. That's was, amazing because it's it seems like such a, a simple thing to do for the general public. I think most people would just assume that the numbers are basically entirely accurate. Yeah. Um, so then there's it's, it's funny that, that the numbers that do get reported that have just been fabricated uh there's a bit of psychology behind them in the fact that they would never just say oh there was twenty thousand people there people will be like, i don't believe that they'll yeah. say twenty two thousand three hundred and seventy one <laughs> bring that accuracy to your lie and everybody will just assume that it sounds exactly accurate that's but so true you talk about um all right so that's that's crowd numbers moving on to tv ratings which is probably one of yeah again the second most cited metric because a, you can probably get a much more accurate number of total viewers than you could with the crowd. Um, and also TV rights are obviously so important. So TV ratings are by association, very important. They're run by Oztam, uh, which is sort of like a quasi-independent ratings agency commissioned by all the major networks. Um, and they have 6,000 set-top boxes across Australia, 3,500 in metro areas, 2,500 in regional areas. Um, and they're all anonymous. So you're not allowed to say that you have a, they're called a people meter. You're not allowed to reveal that you have a people meter because they're worried that people will try to influence you and companies and brands and channels will try to influence you to, to watch their show. So it's all pretty secretive. I wonder what value you could, uh, <laughs> yeah. you could squeeze out of a, out of a television company if they yeah, if you had found that. out that you could control the ratings. Yeah, if you just so happen to let it slip. Um, and so, yeah, they're selected. These um, households are selected by Oztam. According to them, it's all demographically uh, representative. Who knows? I mean, according to them, according to them, you've just got, I just got to trust them, I guess, because there's nothing else we can do. Um, and they use a, a television remote for each member of the household. So when you watch a show, you say, I'm reading, I'm 24 years old, I'm watching this show, um, yada, 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 and they record that data. And it's quite creepy. From what I found out, they, they're they really onto you and they'll call you if you start watching TV for 10 minutes and no one's logged in. They'll literally call you on the phone and be like, wait, like, <laughs> log in. You have to log in. 
So is there a minimum requirement? How many hours of TV or is it... No. Right. So they want to get a representative um, population. So they, they all TV habits are theoretically accounted for. Um, but there are, of course, some issues. It is a really, really small sample size. Obviously, 6,000 across the whole of Australia makes it pretty difficult to have a, a really, really accurate measurement. The general consensus seems to be that you can tell huge, like you can tell if one show's got more total viewers than another show, but then when they start to break it up into demographics, it gets really, really shady because the margin of error just mm. becomes massive. Um, and one guy said it was is almost meaningless when you start to break down into age and sex and stuff like that. Um, and another issue with sports in particular is that they don't take into account views from pubs and clubs and stuff like that and RSLs where I imagine a lot of sports um, viewers and watchers would be. So there are big problems with TV ratings as well, but you just got to suck it up because there's no other way to do it. There's only one agency and organization that does it. So these are the ratings. You got to play the game. Um, and that's just how it is. Our final one we're going to go through just quickly because it is a bit dry, participation. And we're going to go into that next with Sam um, Al-Maliki, who we've got coming on to talk about grassroots. Um, but the main sort of metric we use is the Ausplay survey, which is done every year by the Australian Sports Commission. And they use um, over 23,500 telephone interviews um, a year, mobile and landline. They do 20,000 with adults, 3,500 with um, parents and guardians who have kids and that's a pretty big sample size and it's generally seen to be superior to things like the Roy Morgan statistics which um, you guys are probably familiar with in I think it was about March of this year they said that rugby had rugby union only had 55,000 active mm, players or something hugely, like that hugely, hugely controversial especially for our audience yeah 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 there are a lot of angry rugby rugby fans arcing up about that when in fact the ARU said there's there's at least 270,000 and the Ausplay numbers sort of back that up so if you want to defer to one um one survey I'd probably go the Ausplay one it seems to be the most reliable So we're joined now by Sam Al-Maliki, a former head of community engagement at Cricket Australia and the current managing director of Activate Global. Now, we've been discussing ratings and attendance, which are generally what we think of as make or break. Um, but I want to focus now on the overall good that a sport does through accessibility and supporting its grassroots. Um, at a macro level, we can see how every sport has a sort of circle of life um, from participation and community at, at a local level right up to that attendance and, and ratings at the, at the top level. Um, each sort of feeds the other. You know, players learn the sport and provide the talent and the fans um, and support at the top level. And then the top level invests into the grassroots. Um, so beyond the ratings and attendance at the top level, Sam, I wanted to ask you, what should a major competition see as its as its key focus or, or role at a grassroots level? Yeah, it's a very good question, Raman, and it's great to be with you and the guys on the program. Um, to, in response to your to your question, I think the, the critical markers of success at the grassroots, in my view, are firstly levels of interest and passion in the sport from a participation perspective, as well as the levels of uh, retention. What are the retention rates? That's always a great marker of the quality of experience that people have at the grassroots level. 
and and all sporting codes have got to, have got work to do in that area to get more sophisticated about measures the le- measuring the levels of retention as a great marker of the quality of experience that people have. So I think participation overall is an important marker of success, particularly participation in the form of playing as opposed to sampling and promotional activity, which we see all the major sporting codes uh, do through the school system in particular. The other marker of success for me in in, in this area is around volunteer engagement. Uh, Have we got uh, engaged, mobilised, Uh, and passionate volunteers, because at the end of the day, grassroots sport only works and operates at the back of the efforts and the commitment that volunteers make. So volunteer engagement uh, is critical. It's also important that uh, in in making sure that one is, uh, any sport has a strong hold on the grassroots, it's important that there's a a quality um, infrastructure provision uh, for participants to enjoy, as well as volunteers. So the local facilities and infrastructure is also critical. And last but not least, the social impact in terms of inclusion, uh, in terms of the impact on the on the uh, local community, whether it be economic or social, they're all important markers for success for any sporting code that's looking to drive greater engagement at the grassroots. So it's really interesting to hear you sort of talk about um, kids and up to that 16 year old age bracket um, is be- beyond that um, how much sort of how much balance is there between focus on um, on trying to I guess facilitate people from well, adult adulthood onwards um, playing a sport and is there a lot of value placed on that I almost imagine that if you can if you can keep uh, keep a, a child's parents really heavily invested in a game then you've almost sort of won the battle with won the battle with the kid already because they're going to be naturally funneled into whatever sport it may be. Yeah, I agree totally. And I think there isn't enough emphasis on um, continuous lifelong engagement. A lot of the focus tends to be on the junior pathway and juniors. And that's for a range of reasons, uh, in particular around resourcing and the ability to invest. But also primarily a lot of the sports take a long-term view that if if fundamentally kids are engaged between the sort of age of 5 to 12 in the game and right up to 16, then they're like more likely to be lifelong fans of the game and, and attend and, and, and view um, matches and so on. So that's where the, the, the reasoning or the rationale comes in for the focus on, on juniors and junior pathways. Absolutely. Um, I'd just like to jump overseas quickly for a moment um, to, to the UK to... Um, to a fact that um, highlights, I think, the importance of um, investment um, that simply gives kids and communities uh, access to those basic f- facilities. Um, in 2014, this was, so we're talking football in the lead-up to a, to a World Cup, there were 639 publicly available um, artificial grass pitches in England um, compared to... 3,735 in Germany and so we're talking pretty comparable populations here I think we're about 80 million in Germany 60 something million in um, in the UK so if we then use the top level as a benchmark um, it's pretty hard to not draw a correlation between the return on talent and those access to facilities um, in in this case um, artificial pitches that 
don't turn to mud for months um, right. every year, um, which sort of led me to um, a terrible thought that, um, you know, the next Buddy Franklin or, or Elise Perry, who's sort of currently nine, year, nine years old in rural Australia, um, that, that they could potentially, you know, fail to r- reach their potential due simply to that lack of investment in facilities. So um, I wanted to ask, yeah, do, do Australian sporting codes at the moment put enough emphasis on that accessibility? I think uh, <clears throat> all of the sporting organisations that I've dealt with and I've come across are acutely aware of this challenge around facilities and, and the provision of infrastructure that enables the development of talent, but also, more importantly, broader grassroots participation. The problem is, and this is a huge challenge, is that none of the sports have the kind of funds to be able to have the level of investment that's required. And that's why the partnerships with government are so critical uh, in this area. And and I totally agree with you. To me, uh, A, having some natural attributes around a significant-sized population, in addition to sound coaching practices and pathways and infrastructure, are critical uh, to developing elite athletes uh, and who go on and represent our country and succeed at the highest levels on the global stage. Um, so it's very important. And in rural areas, rural and regional areas, the facilities deficit or the, or the, or the lack thereof of quality facilities is really starting uh, to hurt a number of the sports. And, and, and we're seeing that. You know, rural and regional areas used to be the nursery, for example, for rugby league, as well as cricket to some extent, um, and, and, and because of dwindling populations, because of poorer infrastructure and, and facilities, we're no longer seeing the regions being a nursery uh, for our top athletes. So it's definitely a, a problem uh, that needs to be resolved in partnership between the major sporting codes uh, and government at every single level. Uh, but I think there's a good level of awareness about this issue and efforts to try and address it. Uh, it's just a mammoth task that requires... Uh, a lot of resources. Now, just finally, um, I wanted to just put a sort of potentially not very simple question to you. Um, we've been talking about ratings, attendance, um, and now participation and, and grassroots. Um, how should a sporting code rank these things um, in, as far as vital to their success? Yeah, I think um, I think it's a really uh, important question that every uh, sporting administrator is um, has to consider, uh, and certainly a question that you're is presented to you, or at least is one that uh, you need to be able to have a good uh, understanding of how you're going to approach it. In my view, and, and um, I think they're all equally important because there are so many interdependencies and reliance on, for example. Uh, broadcast revenue to be able to sustain the grassroots and to drive levels of participation and interest in the game, which then has a flow-on effect on at-match attendance and in the long-term ongoing ratings and, and your ability to generate revenue through broadcast deals and other di- uh, other digital uh, revenue platforms. So they're all interdependent. They're all equally important. But what I've often increasingly come to, to, to find is that Increasingly, sports need to to remind themselves, uh, need to be acutely aware that these things need to be prioritised in a way that doesn't see grassroots sport be the poorer cousin of the focus on ratings and attendance. 
uh, and, and also the elite pathway. Uh, often grassroots, uh, the grassroots participation, grassroots community is seen as the poorer cousin when it comes to levels of investment compared to those other areas, for example, elite pathways, broadcast or fan engagement. Uh, you know, there'll be no questions or there'll be limited questions asked or a lower threshold for a significant investment in, say, a fan engagement marketing effort as opposed to a participation marketing campaign. And so what's really important is to make sure that there is a, a healthy level of balance uh, between all of these critical areas to success uh, for any sporting organisation. It it is uh, amazing sometimes to to think how it can be seen of as seen as the the poorer cousin when so many of the people that are that are high up in um, sporting organisations or who played at the elite level would have started um, their their path to being an elite athlete uh, as as a grassroots player. Um, Sam, thanks so much for talking to us uh, today. It's been really fascinating to to hear your thoughts on this. So we could talk for hours about what success means uh, in sport, but uh, we did open this question up to our Roarers on the raw.com.au and we had a few interesting responses come through. Um, Midfielder says that the player base to him is the most important side of any sport. So I guess he's talking about, you know, those marquee players, um, having, watching those great players in any format. Um, So you got Dave Warner in cricket maybe and... uh, Dangerfield in AFL, for example. But uh, Crazy Horse says, for me, it's the percentage of the population engaged and participating in sport, which is the most important. So um, I just thought we'd look at a few markers of success. We've, we've talked about the markers. Now it's time for a bit of a comparison. Uh, from a f- professional sports point of view, it's all about those tangible figures that are publicly available. The AFL leads the way for crowd figures with an average of 35,207 fans attending each game in 2017. And in fact, that makes it the fourth most attended domestic league in the world. That's re- behind, Yeah, behind, that's behind the NFL, Bundesliga and the English Premier League. So that's how well the AFL is doing. And the Big Bash, we can't forget the Big Bash, it's not too far behind with 30,114 per game. Was the Big Bash below or above IPL? It was above IPL, believe it or not. It was right. 5,000 per game above IPL. I wonder how IPL... Indian their, Premier League, uh, we should point out. Yeah, sorry. People. I wonder the, how they count their crowds. The Indian Premier League needs a lady to count their crowds <laughs> yes. for them, I think. Um, <laughs> there'll right. be a few, a few fence jumpers, potentially. <laughs> But then we look at the other end of the scale and uh, the NRL had 16,000 attend each game in 2017. So well down on AFL. But then look at what AFL get, uh, the NRL gets on TV ratings and they're um, 100k more per game for Metro viewers on free-to-wear. That's the like-for-like like comparison. Right. So, you know, NRL's leading TV, AFL leading uh, attendance. Uh, but then uh, Big Bash, um, they're 600,000... Uh, per game metro compared to around the 260,000 mark for AFL games. But then we, we go into that last metric, which is, which is participation. And Australian rules football has more participants than cricket and rugby league if you combine adults and kids playing. So after you look at all those metrics, for me, it's AFL that stands out as the most successful purely from a professional point of view. And that's what we're marking success by. And that's... uh 
you know, what everyone talks about, the ratings, uh, the crowd figures and the participation. But then we can't rule out football, which has more than a million players playing in Australia. So uh, in that sense... And that's number one? That's number one. By a long by way, I think, By a long isn't way. It? So a netball is also extremely popular for participation and golf comes in second on the list behind football. Yeah, I had a look at that, um, the Ausplay numbers as well, Conks. It's really interesting. I think it's worth just probably giving a rundown of, I think it's about the top 10 Australian... Important to remember, this is adults and kids playing, just so people know. Yeah, yeah. So football comes out on top with 1 million, then it's daylight, then it's golf with 650,000 roughly, Australian Aussie rules football with 635,000, then netball, tennis, cricket, all between about 506,000, then basketball with uh, about 500,000 again, Touch football is 270,000. Swimming comes in at 267. And then rugby league is only just coming in now at 247. And then athletics comes in at 238. And that's number 10. And I can't even see rugby union on this list, but I think their numbers have it at about 250. Um, I think it's fascinating to see. Like golf, I wouldn't, that surprised me, but in hindsight, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because um, it gets forgotten. It does skew old golf. So. Not too many juniors. Oh, really? <laughs> so I think if you looked at that junior list, golf would be well down. But yeah. uh, when you combine adults, it's um, obviously one of those great uh, retirement sports. And uh, I know that my dad's out on the course every single day. So, uh, But uh, looking at, we, we go back to how the participation of soccer, uh, A-League, rate, A-League crowd figures are only about 12,000 per game on average last season anyway. So um, does football actually care that much about crowd figures considering this participation and should we be looking more at participation like Sam said? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the thing. I mean, I think each sport will have its own metrics which they value more than others. So football would obviously love to have better professional numbers to have that more money and that cultural capital coming through. But they're looking at those, you know, for 1 million people, 4.5% of the population are playing it. You're sitting pretty happy. Um for me, I think I'm with you, Conks. I think if you overlook, if you take a look at all of them, um, I think Australian Aussie rules and cricket probably sit up on top just because they do so well in every single metric across crowds, ratings, um, you know, financially and also participation. But football is a really interesting curveball. What do you reckon, right? It is, um, and potentially, it just hasn't managed to ingrain itself in culture in Australia as well as. Australian rules football and and cricket because it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, I was I was erring towards crowd figures as being what I thought would would trump as the key sort of indicator as the success for the success of a sport being that it's really engaged um, people in the community that it exists in and they show up to the game and are interested in the sport. Um, Swans fans. <laughs> but with cricket and and AFL it's it's interesting cuz i think it has reached they've both reached a point where they are just so heavily ingrained in culture in australia that they sort of transcend um they transcend the fact that it, they are a sport and just arrive at the point where people attend the games and talk about the games and are aware of what's happening in the sports um because they are so ingrained in culture mm. um which 
perhaps shouldn't be the measure of success um, if people are just sort of dragged along by the masses. It, it was for cricket for me, but I think, you know, you're almost splitting hairs. It's almost meaningless sort of between arguing between those two. Um, but there is that clear, I think, delineation of cricket and AFL, probably the two most successful. Then I guess you've got uh, football and rugby league, which both have their strengths, um, but haven't got it across all of them. It's a bit of a mess trying to decide between the others. And it's quite sad, in my opinion, to see rugby union not making those two tiers of Australia's most yeah, successful sports. Absolutely. With the Bledisloe Cup alone, it should be well, well up there. And I think it comes down to Australia's lack of success against New Zealand. Mm. It's kind of getting to the point where, I mean, Australians love to win, more probably more so than New Zealanders, even though they dominate rugby. But... Um, it just hasn't. It's like the Origin series when Queensland was so dominant. Just needs to be a contest. Needs to be Australia. I think that's another level of success that gets overlooked. That Australia just hasn't been good at rugby for a long time. So, uh, but looking at that list, I was just keen to hear your thoughts. Is there any sports on that list that you think would step up and become more successful and really go to that next level? I think basketball in Australia has that quite a big participation rate for not a huge lot of cultural impact. Uh, the NBL seems to be growing strength to strength every year. Mm. Huge crowds, uh, like, oh, not total crowds, but they're filling out all their stadiums, uh, which is great to see. Well, that was massive in the 90s, the NBL. So could could make a resurgence if they can get back to that, whatever they had that was going in the marketing back then. Yeah, I've still got my Shane Heal Sydney Kings jersey. Um, doesn't obviously <laughs> Isn't fit. he still playing? <laughs> <laughs> no. But for you, yeah, I think basketball would be the one to watch coming through. Yeah, I agree. It's an interesting one to compare that potentially to football, um, being that the NBL don't seem to be struggling for, for crowds at their games, um, which is fantastic, have a lot of... Um, uh, have a lot of kids playing um, and it's also a great game that's carried through like into um, into adulthood. So uh, I guess congratulations to cricket and AFL for being Australia's two most successful sports in the podcast opinion but of course we'd love to hear what you guys have to think so let us know in the episode article which we will have up. We'd love also if you could head over to iTunes and give us a rating um, and a review if you've liked what you've heard. If you haven't liked what you've heard just shh keep it on the down low but we are a new podcast um, and we'd love to get your support and really build this into something great next episode we're going to be talking about short form sports we'll see you then